As we go to open God's Word together, let's ask Him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, one thing we have asked of you, and that we will continue to seek after, that we may dwell in your house all the days of our life, to gaze upon your beauty, and to inquire in your temple. Hear us, O Lord, as we call to you. Be gracious to us and answer us. For you have said, seek my face, and our hearts say to you now, your face, Lord, do we seek. Please do not hide your face from us, but reveal it to us in the face of Christ Jesus, our Lord, and teach us your way, O Lord, and lead us now on a level path, for we ask all this in Jesus' precious name, amen. Please be seated, and please turn with me in in God's word to the book of Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Song of Solomon is between the books of Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. Song of Solomon, and we want to read together from chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, and that'll be our text for this evening. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, beginning our reading at verse 5, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance My beloved is to me as a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of En Gedi. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, Well, we've reminded ourselves as we've gone through this book that this is wisdom literature, and this is wisdom literature particularly for how to love That's the wisdom that's being given to us here. And we noted last time that one of the helpful ways to think about wisdom literature is that it provides us beams and bombs. Do you remember we talked about that? Uh, The beams and bombs of wisdom literature, particularly they are beams for helping us have a foundation to build on. So wisdom literature gives us a structure, a foundation that we can build with. And then, of course, the bombs of wisdom literature is to blow up the false ideas that abound about how love should work. So particularly when it comes to wisdom literature in this book, How to Love, the beams and bombs are particularly for how to love. Uh, And particularly the bombs blow up false ideas of love. And it's interesting as you go through this book and you think about how God's Word teaches us the truth about love, um, how often we see exposed how wrong our world gets the ideas about love. And one of the really beautiful things about this interchange that we have here 
between the woman and her husband-to-be as they are interacting with one another, you see that they, they meet one another. There is a need expressed. There is a gift meeting that need that they give for one another and a clear appreciation for one another in the way they relate. Um, now, maybe you didn't catch all that as we read. It's the challenge of poetry, right? It, it requires close reading and poetry like this that has so many images that are foreign to us, uh, that can present its own difficulties. But I hope we can even see just in, on the basics of this interchange, there are needs being expressed. And one of the reasons that the responses are given the way that they're given is to try to meet those needs expressed and show an appreciation. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves, and in that book he points out a number of aspects of how love operates. Um, and he kind of talks in three ways about love. Um, he talks about need love, gift love, and appreciative love. He says, you know, there is a love that needs things from another person. That's a real aspect of love, the need we have from others. But love isn't all taking, is it, if it's working right? It's also giving to the other person what they need. Um, And he talks about love is also appreciative. There's a sense in which you're appreciating the person for who they are. And he says we can talk about that in the way that we love God, and we can talk about that in the way that we love one another. Um, that it's, it's needs being met, also gifts being given, and appreciation being expressed. And that all of those are involved in really loving truly. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes this, Need love cries to God from our poverty. Right, It's expressing our need. Gift love longs to serve or even to suffer for God. Appreciative love says, We give thanks to Thee, for thy great glory. Need love says of a woman, I cannot live without her. Gift love longs to give her happiness, comfort, protection, if possible, wealth. Appreciative love gazes and holds its breath and is silent, rejoices that such a wonder should exist, even if not for him, Will he, not, he will not be wholly dejected by losing her. He would rather have it so than never to have seen her at all. You can tell why he's a good author. Right? It's a beautiful way of expressing the, the multifaceted dimension of love. And I think we see that in the Song of Songs. We see that need expressed and the gifts given and the appreciation expressed. And all of that is important because I think One of the ways our culture gets love really wrong is to talk so much about what we get from other people, the needs that we have, that that one aspect of love for our culture seems to choke out the other two. That we we talk so much in terms of we need our needs to be met, that it kind of chokes out the idea that love is also to be giving and that love is to be appreciating the object for its sake. And when that happens, we see how love deteriorates in our culture to being prized only for me meeting my needs. Um, The way the culture talks about that most nowadays is talking about human flourishing, 
You know, it's the important thing that I flourish, and I can only really flourish if my needs are met. And so if I'm in a relationship or in a marriage or in a situation where it's not meeting my needs anymore, I can just abandon it and go find something else that needs me, that fills my needs. And our culture talks like that a lot, right? From a theological, anthropological position, it always sort of, it's a pet peeve of mine when I hear someone say, well, you know, I've got to go and figure out how to love myself first before I can really love other people. Um, And the reason, and that becomes really a common thing to hear, and the reason it's so problematic is the Bible teaches us we have no problem loving ourselves. We are really good at loving ourselves. And in fact, that's the root of our, most of our problems is that we love ourselves to the exclusion of our God and the exclusion of other people. That when the rubber meets the road, the really only important thing is that I'm happy and I do the things that make me happy. And the Song of Solomon really gives us the bombs to blow up that kind of thinking. Because I think we immediately realize if we boil down love to meaning nothing more than me having my needs met, we really lose something of what love is. It's not what we see in the way God loves us. It's certainly not the way we've been called to love one another in marriage or in our relationships with one another. Um, And certainly we shouldn't be surprised that marriage is so deteriorating in our world because that's the prevailing message. It's just most important that I get what I need. And if I don't get what I need, then I move on to find my needs met somewhere else. Um, And and what that turns into is not love. It means using someone to get what you want. Um, And we see how that really deteriorates. Um, Lewis, again, is, is helpful saying how that breaks down. He says, We use a most unfortunate idiom when we say of a lustful man prowling the streets that he wants a woman. Strictly speaking, a woman is just what he does not want. He wants a pleasure for which a woman happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus. How much he cares about the woman as such may be gauged by his attitude to her five minutes after fruition. One does not keep the carton after one has smoked the cigarettes. He said, you know, that kind of unfocused desire, interchangeable, just anyone will do, is not love. Because love is always fixed on a particular object. Um, He describes the opposite. This will be the last long Lewis quote, but I think he's helpful on these things. What, What is the opposite of that? He says, now true love makes a man really want not a woman, but one particular woman. In some mysterious but quite indisputable fashion, the lover desires the beloved herself, not the pleasure she can give. No lover in the world ever sought the embraces of a woman he loved as a result of a calculation, however unconscious, that they would be more pleasurable than any of those other women. If he raised the question, he would no doubt expect that this would be so, but to raise it would be to step outside the world of true love altogether. Um, The world would say, you know, one woman for the rest of your life, how can you know that that's the right thing to do? And true love says, that's the only one I want. Um, I'm not saying she's, you know, I'm making a calculation that she's better than all the women in the world in that sense, but she's the one I know, she's the one I love. 
She's the one who meets my needs. She's the one I want to give things to. She's the one I appreciate. And all of that is here in the Song of Solomon as these two who love one another interact with each other. It's a beautiful interaction because in these two people we see very really portrayed to us the greatness of love and the difficulties of love in a fallen world. Um, and so as we consider these first few verses and we can see these first interactions between this woman and the man that she loves and who loves her, um, we're presented really simply in these, in these few verses, love's hurdles and love's helps. Uh, that's what we see really right here at the beginning of the book, love's hurdles and love's helps. Um, the woman, be, they, there's already been a testimony of how much she loves uh, the, the man she set her love on, that's where we started the book. Um, but now we get into some of the hurdles that she's experiencing, some of the problems as she expresses them. And they're poetically expressed, and they're beautifully expressed. And, you know, some of the difficulty of dealing with this book is we almost have to take apart the poetry, which is never a good way to appreciate poetry. But we really want to understand some of these ideas. And so as she expresses some of the hurdles in the love that she is experiencing with this person, can we boil down how these hurdles are being expressed? And you'll be relieved to know that I think we can. Um, when it comes to the difficulties, the hurdles to love as she expresses them, they are hurdles that we commonly find in the world still today. There are hurdles to their love because of doubt, because of dysfunction, and because of distance. And those are the hurdles that are being expressed here. Doubts, dysfunction, and distance. And how do we see those things being expressed here? Well, first she expresses doubts about herself. Now, it might not sound very doubting when she starts in verse 5 by saying, I am lovely. Right? That doesn't sound like an expression of doubt. Um, when she says, I am very dark but lovely. Um, she's desirable. She knows that she's desirable. That's the idea of lovely there. And she's confident that she's desirable to the one who loves her. Um, but she has doubts about herself and particularly about her appearance. She mentions twice the fact that she is very dark. Right, I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Then she compares things that are dark, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. And then she says, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. Um, as she goes on, she says, I know that he finds me desirable, but I'm concerned about how dark I am. And I'm concerned that maybe the people around me are looking at me and looking at how dark I am. Right? Do not gaze at me, O daughters of Jerusalem. Right? That's who's really being addressed there. Um, she's worried that the other women are looking at her, are evaluating her. And she is aware of the fact that she is darker than is fashionable. This isn't, a, this isn't darkness in terms of any kind of race or ethnicity question. Uh, this is more her saying, that, you know, there's sort of a cultural norm of not being as dark as I am. And I'm dark, and I can feel that everyone is looking at me 
and evaluating me uh, because of how dark I am. Sometimes in cultures, that, that when, if someone had to work outside, they'd be more exposed to the sun, they would be darker. And so the, the lighter you are, the more it shows you weren't out in the sun, and the, maybe the more wealthy you are because you don't have to be out in the sun. She's worried about her appearance, how people are looking at her, how she is being judged, how she holds up to these cultural ideas of beauty. And it seems to be a growing concern as she looks around her. Um, Don't gaze at me. Don't gaze at me, daughters of Jerusalem. It's almost as if she feels like they are silently judging her, critiquing her for her looks. And we can all relate to that, right? Worrying about being somewhere where people are evaluating us and judging us by how we look and how we appear. And so she is expressing this concern, right, of of what she is in terms of thought of in the culture. That's one of the hurdles to how she feels loved, is to feel like she has doubts about herself. And then the second hurdle that's connected with the first is a dysfunctional family. That's particularly the dysfunction that she is dealing with in this text. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My, bro- my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Um, she expresses the reason she's had to be out working, the reason she hasn't been able to tend to her garden and tend to her looks the way she would like to is because her family is sort of set against her. We see that in that expression, my mother's sons were angry with me. Now, what is the most simple way to refer to your mother's sons? It's brothers, right? Um, that makes us work too hard, right, to track mother's sons. You're my brother. Um, but why, why is it expressed that way? It puts distance there, doesn't it? Maybe you parents have had that when a child has been misbehaving and a father walks in and the mother says, you'll never guess what your son did today. Um, He's in trouble, so he's become your son. You'll never never guess what your daughter did at school. You know, that's a way of distancing, right? Doesn't mean you don't love them, but it means it's someone's job to take care of it. Um, Mother's sons is a way of distancing that too. Why has she not been able to upkeep according to the cultural standards. Why? Because her family is, in a sense, set against her. Notice there's no father intervening for her. And there's a mother who's sort of absentee, and her, and her brothers are really the ones that are making it impossible uh, for her to keep her own vineyard, to tend to herself. It's the family that is serving as an obstacle, potentially, to her happiness. It's interfering with her, her prospects for love and marriage the way that they are behaving. And it begins to identify a theme we will see running through the book. There is something of a Cinderella motif here. Um, that her family is against her in a lot of ways. Uh, boys and girls, you can recognize that Cinderella motif. Um, you might remember when Cinderella is making a really nice dress for herself for the ball and her stepsisters come in and tear it all to pieces. Um, they're against her. 
And you know the story. You know she has to go to the ball to meet her Prince Charming. And if she doesn't have a dress to do it, where will she get any help? You know she gets help. But that's part of the problem, right? Her family's against her. Her family's ruining her prospects. And that's another hurdle that she's wrestling with is the dysfunction of her family. These people that should be near her and looking out for her life, but they are providing hurdles to her being near to the one she loves. And the final hurdle she's wrestling with is distance from her beloved. He's always on the move as a shepherd, and he's gone, and she doesn't know where to find him. And to go looking for him would present more of the same kinds of challenges that she's already been wrestling with. Uh, to go out looking for him in, at high noon would subject her to more sun. She's already worried about being dark. And if she were to veil herself to go look for him, there's a picture of maybe she's going to be mistaken for the kind of loose women that followed the shepherds around. So she's you know, wrestling with this. If I go out in the sun unveiled, then I could become darker, which is already something I'm worried about. And if I veil myself, then I'm going to be subjected to being misunderstood by the culture, which I'm already struggling with, and that's going to make things worse too. So the distance she is from him, that she doesn't know where he is, and if she goes to him, is it going to cause more problems for her along the lines that she's already struggling with? And so these are the hurdles that she is expressing. These are the difficulties that she is experiencing, the, the hurdles to love that are impacting her right now and causing her to sing out about them. And that's what makes this song somewhat timeless as it comes to wisdom for love because all of these things can still be difficulties and hurdles today. Right? We still worry about people judging our appearance and how we look to other people. Right? Articles are legion that have been written about body image issues that are problems among young people, concerned that because we aren't what the world considers beautiful or fashionable, we won't be able to find someone who will love us. People who wrestle with dysfunctional family experiences that can make us feel unloved or like this woman somewhat trapped or imprisoned, where the only hope is of someone coming who can rescue her from the situation that she finds herself in. Um, and relationships today are still complicated by factors like distance. Um, that's why wisdom is somewhat timeless for these things, both in terms of our human relationships, but a lot of these same hurdles come in our relationship to God. Uh, the difficulties we find with loving God. Have you ever had doubts about yourself when you think about your relationship with God? Right? If only our suntan was our biggest problem before the Lord. But we wrestle with doubts about ourselves. I know myself, I know my sin. Can God really love someone like me? Will He really love someone like me. It's not a surface problem I have. It's not merely cosmetic. It's, it's imprinted on my soul. There's a darkness to my soul. Can God really love someone like me? And we all grow up in a dysfunctional family. I don't think I'm about to share tea about the Godfreys that nobody knew before. Um, we all grow up in a dysfunctional family. We are by nature children of wrath. 
We grow up slaves in a household with the devil as our master who hates us. Right? There's nothing but abusiveness in our background. Um, We all come from that dysfunctional family background. Knowing that there is no hope there unless someone comes and takes us away from the situation we are in. And as we come to God, we can also struggle with distance. How many psalms are there that struggle and feel like God is far off and we don't know where he is? Psalm 10, that is one that I often turn to when, when terrible things happen, begins with that struggle. Why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? We needed you and you're not here. Where are you? Right? Doubts, dysfunction, distance, they all are hurdles even to our relationship with God. And what's needed in these moments is for a voice to speak into our doubts and our dysfunction and our distance and speak comforting words that we need to hear. And that's the beautiful interchange we have in these verses that after expressing all of these these difficulties, all these hurdles to love, then the loved one comes along and answers with all of love's helps. Um, Those things are addressed by the one who loves her. Um, And he he addresses them in, in a different order than she expresses them, but he does address them. I mean, he begins in verse 8 through 11 by addressing her concerns about dysfunction and about distance. Um, He says, you know, you feel distant from me, but the problem is not as bad as you think it is. Sometimes we need that outside perspective, don't we? And this book is never patronizing. We always have to be clear about that. It's not a man coming along to a woman and saying, oh, here you go, worried about nothing again. That's not what he's saying. He's trying to speak into her legitimate concerns. And what does he do? He tells her that you know where I am, you know how to find me, and you know how you can leave your family and be with me. That's what he's speaking into those doubts and those dysfunctions and that distance. And he's beginning with saying, I might seem far away, but you know where to find me. The distance is not insuperable. Right in verse 8, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. Um. He's really sort of saying, it's not really hard to follow where you take a herd of sheep. You can see where they've been. You can follow along. And that's where you'll find me. And if you're worried about people wondering why you're following after shepherds and flocks, then bring your flocks along and no one will think twice about it. Um, You see how he's trying to speak into the problems that she has expressed and show how there is actually answers to these things. To all of these hurdles, there's helps that he has to offer. You actually do know the way. It's not as difficult to find me 
as you think it is. You follow the path, and it leads right to me. And if you bring your flocks with you, no one will think twice about why you're out following sheep paths. The distance problem is not an insuperable problem. Um, Follow and you can find me. I'm not as far away as you think I am. The Lord needs to do that for us from time to time too, doesn't he? When we feel that he is far away. What does he do? He comes and reminds us, actually, I'm not that far away from you. I'm near. And if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. And you know how to find me. Because when the disciples said, Jesus, I don't think we know where you're going. How can we know the way? He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is always near. That means God is always near. We might feel that he's too far off and can't find him, but what does God do? He comes by his word and speaks to us and says, actually, you don't have to say, I have to go up and find him or dig down to find him. He's actually near. He's in your mouth and in your heart. You know the way to him. Distance is not a bar to our love for God. And it's interesting, too, because he says, you know, yeah, if you come with your flocks, there may be some risk. But there's a risk involved in every relationship. There's no such thing as, as total safety when it comes to loving. Even in our relationship with God, Jesus said we have to count the cost. The world is going to evaluate us. It's going to be thinking about us and thinking about what we do and, and why you are here on a Sunday night and not doing something better as the world sees it. Right? There's a cost in following the Lord, but it's worth it to find him. And so there's this wonderful comfort about, about her here. But actually the distance isn't so insuperable. Uh, you can come to me and you can find me. Uh, and he also addresses the doubt she has about herself by what he calls her. Um, she has said, you know, I'm, I'm lovely, I'm desirable to him, but I'm too dark and I'm wondering about how the, the world thinks about me. How does he address her? If you do not know, almost beautiful among women. Right? He says, I don't think you're just my type. Right? You're beautiful. You're the most beautiful among women. Uh, He speaks into that concern of hers about herself. Um, Hers is sort of subjective. I know I'm lovely to him. And his response is, you're not just lovely to me, you're beautiful. You're the most beautiful. Um, he doesn't see the imperfection that she senses, but affirms that, he, that she's all he wants in terms of beauty. It's almost as if he's saying, I'm not, I don't love you and I'm overlooking the little things that other people have to overlook to love you. That's not where he's coming from, how he expresses it to her. He affirms her beauty and speaks in ways that enhance it, um, speaks in ways that build her up. Um, That's, I think, the source of the things that he says in verses 9, 10, and the response that's received in verse 11. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. 
He's talking about her, her physical appearance, how she is adorned before him. Um, and again, there could be an impulse to say, you know, stereotypical male, he's only concerned about her appearance. That's all he says. She has all these doubts, and all he talks about is her appearance. But, but notice, that's where she's struggling with her sense of inadequacy, and that's why he speaks to, to her about what he speaks. That's why he focuses on her face and on her head and on her neck. Those are the things people see. The places that are exposed to the sun where she might be worried about those things. He's speaking into her concern. He's trying to meet her needs by what he says. He's listening to the doubt she has expressed and he's speaking into that for her sake. Building her up where she feels the most vulnerable. Now, you know, I don't know if, you, if the women here swoon when they hear, you're like the mares of Pharaoh's chariots. Um, you know, I, men, I don't know if I'd re- recommend putting that on a, you know, card with your flowers for Valentine's Day. Um, and that's where, you know, we have a kind of distance from this because we can sometimes say, now, how is that really exactly a compliment? Um, well, think about the kinds of horses Pharaoh would have on his chariot. They were the finest kind of horses you could find. Um, when, they, when, they, when they walked by pulling Pharaoh's chariot, they were the most noble, beautiful beings there were for Pharaoh to have. And if you look in antiquity, his horses are always adorned with all kinds of jewels. Um, and so it is a way of complimenting her. It's just a picture that we have too much distance from to really understand the nature of the compliment. But it's the kind of thing when his horses went by, everyone said, it's just unbelievable. They're unbelievably magnificent creatures, and they're so beautifully adorned with gold. And that's what he's saying when he compares her to that. That that's what you're like to me, he says. I'm just in awe of you when you go by. You're noble and you're beautifully adorned. So you may think of yourself as, you know, I know you like me, but I've got all these problems. He says, no, when, when I relate to you, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, and all I want is not only for you to understand your beauty, but to act to enhance it. That's sort of the response of the others here in verse 11. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. He doesn't just say you're beautiful to me. He desires to make her more beautiful. I think the women here would probably accept the gold and silver. I could be wrong. You can correct me afterward. But, you know, this is the image we get. It's a costly thing. He's willing to undertake cost to not just affirm her beauty, but act to enhance it. Um, All for the purpose of building her up, to make her more beautiful, to invite the others not to silently judge and to critique, but to praise her and to build her up. She was worried about what, their, what they would say about her. What do they say about her? We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. She doesn't need to fear how she's being evaluated. Um, he loves her. He's seeking to build her up. And that's one of the beautiful things that we'll see in this song is this continual back and forth where it shows that they are really listening to, uh, to each other and speaking to each other the things that need to be said meeting what's been said and meeting it with love and expressing that love in a way that's meant to build love. And that's what it does for her to hear these things from him. 
to hear these helps that speak into her situation, to remind her that she is not going to be part of this dysfunctional household forever, that she is his bride-to-be, and that she's going to come into a house not that's filled with mother's sons who are angry with her, but with a husband who loves her like this. And that renews her in love for him. And we see that in verses 12 through 14. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of En Gedi. Um, it's, it's all being expressed, this intimacy for her expressed in terms of all of these scents. Um, all these scents that go out to him from her. That's this wonderful picture, and it's a wonderfully intimate picture because, you know, unless you're doing it wrong, perfume is smelled up close. Um, it's meant to draw someone in and be, and be experienced in closeness to someone. And that's the kind of closeness that she is expressing for him um, with all of these beautiful and expensive kinds of scents. Um, there was sort of an oasis on the western shore of the Dead Sea that was a royal garden in En Gedi. And so she's saying, these are the finest flowers from the finest place. That's what you are to me. And it's this beautiful expression of, of love's help, building love and building closeness. Um, that the word the husband speaks to the wife draws her into him, draws him close, builds that intimacy between them. That in the midst of everything that is a hurdle to love, he speaks into it in a way that helps to draw them closer together. And that's why it's a profound mystery to think about not, not just love and marriage in these books, but in how it points to how the church draws strength from our Lord Jesus Christ and the way he loves us. That he speaks to us exactly what we need to hear that he draws us closer to himself. And, it, and we have a bigger problem in the, in the, than they have in the Song of Solomon because none of us would ever say as the bride of Christ, I am lovely. We know we're not lovely. We know we are in ourselves undesirable to God. We have no need that we can meet for God. He does not need us. Um, if we think in the terms of, of what need do we meet for God? None. He doesn't need us. What is there to appreciate in us, in and of ourselves? There's nothing for Him to appreciate. We are sinners. Where does all of our loveliness, all of our desirability, all of our, our loveliness come from? It comes from God giving it to us. He gets nothing from us that he needs. He gives us everything that we need. He doesn't love us because we're lovely. It's his loving us that makes us lovely. It's his setting his love on us and saying, of all the people in the world, I love you. There's all kinds of people in the world that don't love the Lord and that he says to us, I don't love them either. And you might look at the world and think, you know, there's a, there's a better group of people that you could fill this building with than us. Um, surely, Lord, you can do better than me. 
But he says, no, you're the ones that I love. You're the ones that I draw to myself. He's the one who speaks to us the words that we need to hear, that he might draw us closer to himself, that we might know that he loves us, and that his, his love is what makes us lovely, and that he loves us so that we might become more lovely than we are. Right? His love is what cleanses us of our sin, takes away that dark spot that's on our soul. And he doesn't just bring us to himself so that he might cleanse us of our sin. He brings us to himself that he might build us up in holiness. To make us into something that's truly lovely before his holy gaze. It's an awesome thing when the Bible says that when we see Christ, we will be like him. For he is lovely. He is worthy of the Father's love. We know that we're not. But what is his promise? I have set my love on you to make you lovely. And I will build you up with precious things. Not silver and gold, but something more precious than silver and gold. By the blood of my Son, I'm willing to build you up. And to make you lovely. And it's important to remember that we have a God who loves us like that, um, who is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Because in these wonderful pictures of love in the Song of Solomon, we're going to be reminded over and over again of how much we fail to live up to this standard. We're going to be reminded of all kinds of failures to love one another as we ought. Right, we can, be con- we can be convicted that we have been critics silently judging people um, where we shouldn't have been. That sometimes we've heard doubts and fears expressed by other people and we've fed them rather than helped them. Um, we sh- when we should have built them up, we didn't. And maybe we feel trapped or isolated by singleness or family circumstances that make us despair of ever finding happiness, abundance, and love. And that's why it's so important for us to be reminded of the love of God. That is a perfect love. That meets all of our needs by His grace. And heals all of our failures. And when we understand God's glorious pursuit and response of love to His people, it will cause us to want to draw near to Him. To draw closer to Him. And to return to Him a portion of that love that he has given to us, that's deeper than any romantic love, because this is a love for a God who has saved our souls. Psalm 56, 12 and 13 says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. That's what helps us transform our ability to love other people when we recognize how much charity God has loved us with. I think I said I wasn't going to end with any more quotes from C.S. Lewis. I do have one more that's here, and I'll, I'll end there. But he says something wonder about, wonderful about how all love depends on charity. He says this, We are all receiving charity. There is something in each of us that cannot be naturally loved. 
It is no one's fault if they do not so love it. Only the lovable can be naturally loved. You might as well ask people to like the taste of rotten bread or the sound of a mechanical drill. We can be forgiven and pitied and loved in spite of it with charity, no other way. All who have good parents, wives, husbands, or children may be sure that at some times, and perhaps at all times in respect of some one particular trait or habit, they are receiving charity, are loved not because they are lovable, but because love himself is in those who love them. Thus God admitted to the human heart transforms not only our gift love, but need love. Not only our need love of him, but our need love of one another. We all need charity. We all have things about us that are unlovable. And God has showed us the way to love the unlovable by loving us in his son. And that's the key to loving others as well. As the Apostle John says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. May we do that by his grace. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this wisdom to know how to love. We thank you for the beauty of the pictures here. and We pray that they would help us to do a better job of loving you and loving one another, that we might think about how you have showered us with love, and we pray that we would extend that charity because of how we've been loved to love others, to see what is of you in them and to reach out in love for their sakes. Help us to follow this wisdom, Lord, and to glorify you in what we do and hear us and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.